The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. They may know as little about us as we do about them. Except that they know that they've got us in deep trouble. If so, then the question becomes, what do they do with that knowledge? Data, do you have any information touching this on any file? None, sir. Only hearsay and third-hand reports, most of which conflict. Which reports do not conflict? That the Ferengi are... Well, the best description may be traitors. What kind of traitors? A comparison modern scholars have drawn from Earth history likens the Ferengi to the ocean-going Yankee traders of 18th and 19th century America, sir. From the history of my forebears, Yankee traders. Who, in this case, sail the galaxy in search of mercantile and territorial opportunity. And are these scholars saying that the Ferengi may not be unlike us? Hardly, sir. I believe the analogy refers to the worst quality of capitalists. The Ferengi are believed to conduct their affairs of commerce on the ancient principle caveat emptor, let the buyer beware. Yankee traders, I like the sound of that. Well, sir, I doubt they wear red, white, and blue or look anything like Uncle Sam. Good morning, London. It is Thursday, March 5th, 2009. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where we will be with you from now till noon. No, no, not right wing. Just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. And welcome to the show today where our theme is capitalism and all of its manifestations. We're going to be talking about individualism, about the future. What's going to happen with the economy? What, is it, what are our governments doing? Everybody seems to think they don't know what's going on. But for the main theme today, and by the way, uh, before I forget, the number to call if you want to join the conversation or have any comments to add is 519-661-3600 or email us at justrightchrw at gmail.com. And of course, you can check out our website, justrightmedia.org, where you see an archive of all the shows, including the current ones. Now, you may be wondering why I'm saying this when I say, with friends like these, capitalism needs an enema. (laughs) You know, no other characters, if you heard that opening clip, uh, no other characters in the imaginary world of Star Trek were more confusedly and poorly defined and consistently ridiculed by every species in that series, uh, I think, than the Ferengi, eh? Though uh, by their behavior in the Star Trek series, the Ferengi behaved uh, sometimes very inconsistently, by the way, but they behaved explicitly in a very non-capitalistic way. The series nevertheless continued to portray the Ferengi as the free market cowboy capitalists that uh, they clearly were not. Yet despite this, the Ferengi were still the only ones in the Star Trek series to ever say anything really positive about trade, profit, wealth, self-interest, or risk in the economy generally. And so That's why I say, as in real life, art has chosen to imitate the fact that capitalism's worst enemies are its public defenders. And I think we're going to illustrate that today on a number of fronts, including, I'm just going to pick out Star Trek a bit too. Now, the double irony in the whole Star Trek series with respect to this point 
is that of all the species and cultures represented in Gene Roddenberry's world of Star Trek, and when I say Star Trek, I mean all of them, you know, from the first series right through to Enterprise, five of them, I think. But it was Earth's Federation, really, that was the only capitalist system in the whole bunch. I mean, the prime directive, for heaven's sake, that's just another term for laissez-faire. You know, we're going to leave them alone. We don't interfere in other people's worlds and cultures and things like that and, and, and attack them. We only operate in self-defense. These are all capitalist principles. And, of course, they're the police, which is a basic necessity of capitalism. And yet, even on Star Trek, within the context of that overriding philosophy, there are still a number of episodes in which outrageously silly things are said about uh, for example, the non-existence of money, which I've picked on on this show before. When everybody who even watches the series knows that they have money, <laughs> who are they kidding, you know? Every time I hear Captain Picard say, we have no money, I'm going, did he not read the script? Uh, you know, not only do they have platinum, but they have a credit system, which incidentally, you heard our show last, uh, a couple weeks back, was in the process of collapsing, even in the, uh, in the world of Star Trek. So the contradictions and inconsistencies certainly conspire to keep everyone ignorant about capitalism and stupid about socialism. And that's why I say, with friends like these, capitalism needs an enema. Now, last week when we talked about uh, government efforts to eliminate poverty, I played defensive. This week, we go on the offensive, mainly because I keep hearing offensive things about non-offensive and virtuous concepts. So I, so I think it's time to define or be defined? That is the answer. Whether it is nobler to keep playing defensive against an outrageous onslaught of irrationality and coercion, or by identifying and thus exposing end the madness? That is the question, and that's the intended mission of our program today. We are out to save capitalism from its alleged defenders, among whom there are more Judases, I'm afraid, than there are apostles, that's for sure. And uh, so, you know, shall we all bend over together and take our medicine, or do you want to go through life all constipated with all the undiluted crap that people foolishly and unwittingly keep saying about capitalism? And please pardon my visuals, but they just keep shoveling it, you know? Shovel-ready economics that we talked about a couple weeks ago is just a natural extension of just keep shoveling it politics. And we have to keep digging out of the bull poo-poo, actually, you know? It's just coming at us steadily. And... Um, so on today's show, you'll hear plenty of shoveling going on, straight from the horse's rear, one might say. But first, let us set the stage before it gets too dirty with these insightful and prophetic observations about people's attitudes towards capitalism and their very tacit acceptance of the political policies that repeatedly destroy their lifestyles and often their very lives. In her book, Capitalism, the Unknown Ideal, Ayn Rand wrote, and she wrote this in the preface of the book. You know, it's the little pages in the front with the small, small letters, the IV kind of page, you know. And she, she points out, and this is really the theme of the show today, that, and, and again, this was written, oh my goodness, quite a while ago, uh, 1966. No politico-economic system in history has ever proved its value so eloquently or has benefited mankind so greatly as capitalism writes Rand, and none has ever been attacked so savagely, viciously, and blindly. The flood of misinformation, misrepresentation, distortion, and outright falsehood about capitalism is such that the young people of today have no idea and virtually no way of discovering any idea of its actual nature. 
to obliterate the truth on such a large scale, to hide an open secret from the world, to hide without any power of censorship, yet without any significant sound of protest, the fact that an ideal social system had once been almost within men's reach cannot be done by a conspiracy of evildoers. It cannot be done except with the tacit compliance of those who know better. Of course, we examined that theory last week when we talked about Isabel Patterson's uh, uh, All Good People. She talks about how so much of the harm in the world is done by people with good intentions. But continues Rand, by their silence, by their evasion of the clash between capitalism and altruism, it is capitalism's alleged champions who are responsible for the fact that capitalism is being destroyed without a hearing, without a trial, without any public knowledge of its principles, its nature, its history, or its moral meaning. It is being distorted in the manner of a nightmare lynching, as if a blind, despair-crazed mob were burning a straw man, not knowing that the grotesquely deformed bundle of straws hiding the living body of the ideal. The method of capitalism's destruction rests on never letting the world discover what it is that is being destroyed, on never allowing it to be identified within the hearing of the young. And the purpose of this book, she writes about her book, Capitalism, is to identify it. So that was really the reason she wrote the book on capitalism. You know, she wasn't really a political type of person. She was an artist. She wrote novels. She was in the movie industry. And... Uh, but to give you an idea of what people are saying about capitalism, I have a file folder just full of stuff that I put in the capitalist slash anti-capitalist category. And uh, here's an, an, an interesting one. This is from the uh, National Post, December 22nd, written by Frank Dwyer, letter to the editor. Um, we need a new form of capitalism, says the headline. And he responds that uh, Terence Corcoran's column slagging Danny Williams' expropriation of Abbott Tibby's assets is typical of all capitalists who, when they see the government looking out for the voter, drag out the capitalist philosophy and run it up the flagpole. But where is all the capitalists' outrage as we watch governments bail out bank after bank and car company after car company? Now, I don't know why he's asking that, particularly of Terence Corcoran's criticism, because Terence always is picking on those things, so I don't know what he's talking about. But here's the funny one. He, quote, and this is still the letter writer, I suggest that we conservatives need to admit that the old idea of telling government to keep its hands off the economy is dead. Unless companies are watched and regulated, they will always act in the interest of the company. That is no longer acceptable. A new international mission statement for capitalism needs to be written, and it needs to include that corporations have an obligation to work with governments when making decisions that adversely affect the population. Now, what's funny about this fellow's letter is that's how things work right now. Corporations and governments are working hand in hand. Why does he want to? That's not capitalism. Totally not capitalism. He's one of the many of millions of people who bitch about something, call it capitalism, and then go and vote for the socialists when in fact what he's bitching about is socialism. It's literally socialism. Or fascism, which is just the other side of socialism. And uh, the old idea that, that governments keep the hands off the economy. It may be dead in, in, in actual practice, but that's why the economy's dead too. Hello? And here's one that really set me back. This happened on CJBK this past Tuesday and on the Andy Utman show, and he was interviewing Tom McInerney, who's a regular on the show, and he's an investment counselor, and, and they were talking about the economy and how things were getting bad. And Andy Utman asked him, he says, do you ever listen to Rush Limbaugh? And McInerney says, yeah, I do. 
And Udman says, well, did you hear him yesterday saying that everything that Barack Obama is doing is wrong and is making it worse? And he asked him, what, what do you think? And McInerney's response has stunned me, I've got to tell you. Here's what he said. He said, well, you'd think that Rush Limbaugh, or would you think that Rush Limbaugh would say anything else? He says, well, there's a wacko left, and there's a wacko right, and then there's something in the middle. Well, if you've got a wacko left and a wacko right, what's in the middle? The wacko middle. Hello? The adjective doesn't go away if that's how you've defined your terms. But that, again, is a problem with epistemology. And then he says, I think we all know where Mr. Limbaugh's opinions fall. So he's avoided a moral decision here, and he, and he made, made a point of it. So he says, you know, I'm in the middle. Everybody likes to say they're in the middle, but not in the middle of what? And so he says, certainly, there's no question that Limbaugh is a great believer that the market will solve all problems, but we as Canadians understand that there is a role for government in any social problem. Well, is he talking about the economy or is he talking about social problems? He didn't say economic problem. He said social problem, and that's really a strange word to use. And he says, I'm very proud to say that I consider Canada to be a socialist country a socialist capitalist country where we do realize that even though the market can solve all problems, now he's just turned around on his, on his own point, says, says the market can solve all, pro all problems, um, but he says usually those problems are solved by events that include bullets and bloodletting and all those other sorts of things. And then my jaw just dropped and I'm thinking, bullets and bloodletting? Uh, you know, I really don't know what was going on in his mind when he said that. But there's absolutely, if he understood what capitalism was, he would know that it's the system that bans the physical force from relationships. The bullets and bloodletting come from socialists who attack capitalists because capitalists have money and they don't. <laughs> Hello? It's, you know, it's most remarkable for a person whose very livelihood is wholly dependent on productive capitalists succeeding in the marketplace that Mr. McInerney would disparage the system on which he spent, depends so much while boasting, of all things, pride in the fact that Canada is socialist, and I think that should be the source of our shame. Go stand, in, go stand in a hospital waiting room for, you know, spend 10 hours there and see if you can not have to throw up at what you will see. Socialism in action, folks. But it's free. You don't have to pay. Mm -hmm. But he is not alone in his views of capitalism and socialism. Capitalism works just fine, or does it, writes Patrick O'Connell, and uh, from Ottawa on the National Post on December 30th, and he, he writes, in their pure ideological forms, both Marxism and capitalism are perfect systems for any economy. Unfortunately, both founder when launched into the real world, wrecked on the twin reefs of human greed for wealth and lust for power. The capitalist system, however, while self-destructing far more suddenly, is better able to recover itself quickly, end quote. Now, isn't that a wonderful defense of capitalism? <laughs> it's run on a greed for wealth and lust for power. By the way, that's known as the argument from depravity, which you'll hear about later. Ayn Rand identified that as one of the uh, major arguments you'll hear for people justifying why the government should control your life and you shouldn't be able to because you're depraved and you can't make up your own. Uh, you know, you're, you're not a moral person. That's basically it. Here's one from Roderick Braun, London Free Press. December 22nd, economic order not working in the best interest of majority, writes the, reads the headline. Now, I recognize that, that the, the writers of these uh, letters do not write the headlines. That's just the policy of all papers, and you should know that, too. Whenever you read a newspaper, the headline was written by an editor, and it was never written, even in, even in terms of columnists. It's n the headline is always different 
you know, written by someone different than the columnist. There's some copyright reasons behind that, and uh, I've talked about that once before. It's just an interesting little sideline there. But Roderick writes, uh, one must question whether the nature of the world's economic organization really works for the works best for the greatest welfare for the greatest number. Certainly many members of the third world's population lack sufficient clothing, food, sanitation, peace, order, and good government. These are all things to which Canadians as a nation feel entitled. <laughs> There's a dirty word, entitled. Instead of providing largely unnecessary motorized chariots for a few of the world's people, a new economic order, here's another one, <laughs> ought to concentrate on a meaningful redistribution of the Earth's scarce economic resources. And, you know, I'm sure these writers are all very well-meaning, but their prescriptions are for a living hell on Earth. Um, you don't make people in another country rich by saying, well, I'm going to practice poverty myself, and that'll make them feel better. Make, make, make you feel better. It's not going to help them. And, uh, you know, the whole idea that, you know, he talks about the third world. You know, the third world, that term came, I forget how long ago it was developed, but the first world meant the, the, pro the predominantly capitalist world. The second world meant the predominantly uh, centralized government, you know, state economy controlled world. And the third world was merely th th those countries that didn't fit into the first or the second because they were in flux. And generally that meant that they were in either uh, situations of what we might call anarchy or, of course, total state control, uh, neither of, nothing of which is even close to capitalism. First, capitalism was never a system designed to redistribute wealth from anyone to anyone. It just, that's not what it's about. The wealth is created on both sides of every voluntary transaction at the moment of that transaction. End of story. That's it. doesn't get much more difficult than that. And the key is that the transaction be voluntary. Otherwise, wealth is being destroyed. Since one person's gain represents another person's loss, a situation made possible only by criminals and by governments. They're the only two agencies of force that can initiate force and take away the, your values that you've accumulated and thus destroy them because you don't have them anymore. Now, capitalism, we have to understand, was not, wasn't designed, it wasn't planned by anyone at all. It's simply the economic condition that results when you've got freedom in place and rationality and individual justice predominantly ruling or exercised to the greatest degree. It's just what happens. It's how people naturally arrange their lives. They trade. They, there's a division of labor, and then the standard of living rises accordingly. And unlike every other system, which you know, every, every other ism you've ever heard of has to be invented. It has to be made up. Capitalism is the only system, like any other law of nature or in reality, has to be discovered has to be identified, has to be understood on a conceptual level. Everything about capitalism, if it's properly defined, accords with all the laws of nature and reality, whereas everything about socialism is exactly the opposite, which is one of the reasons people are drawn to it, ironically. Capitalism is the wealth-producing system, and in this regard it stands utterly alone against every other possible system that's designed to redistribute wealth. Wealth does not occur in nature, so you can't have a socialist system, this is the irony of everything, without a capitalist system, either integrated with it or somewhere. Somebody's got to be doing the work. So, uh, you know, who's the slave and who's the master in these situations? Now, the legitimate role of government in all of this is to keep, in capitalism, under a capitalist system, is to keep everyone honest and to enforce and to adjudicate voluntary contractual agreements which people freely entered to, not which they were forced to go into. 
And of course, if you want to beat poverty, which we talked about last week, you have to have wealth. And so that's the only answer. You can't be talking about redistributing it. That's, that's an absurdity. And if you need jobs, you have to have employers. Employers, okay? People who take risks. And the irony is poverty activists and socialists of every degree and stripe are openly hostile to both. That's why I openly call them poverty pimps on the show last week. And I call them pimps because what they do is they make all their money in the poverty, in poverty industries with little or real assistance going to the victims themselves. I think they're pimps because they, they fight to prevent the conditions necessary to allow their, the so-called poor to help themselves. And uh, you know that way they trap them in circumstances less in their control, and in, in the control of the poor, that is, and more in the control of the poverty industry, which is how they want it. And again, that's why you know the humanitarians with the guillotines, as Isabel Patterson called them, are all over the place, to use a phrase. And uh, so we're going to take a quick break now and uh, take a listen to some of this stuff here. This is a little bit more of that capitalist misrepresentation we keep hearing in... Um, in the Star Trek series, a couple of episodes here featuring uh, the, the best-known Ferengi uh, probably in the Star Trek series, and that's the character Quark. And we'll be right back on the other side of this. Did you know this Congress of Economic Meddlers actually passed legislation making monopolies illegal? What's the point of being in business if you can't corner the market? Gouge your customers. There's something to be said for keeping prices down by ensuring healthy competition. So what are you going to do with the bar? You can't even dump industrial waste anymore because it might harm the natural habitat. I'm supposed to start worrying about animals now. Look how they live. Wallowing in dirt, sleeping in trees. That's not natural. I suppose you could argue that Ferenginar's biodiversity is a precious resource that belongs to everyone. So what are you going to do with the bar? And don't even get me started about this whole labor rights thing. What have we come to if you can't demand sexual favors from the people in your employ? Unharassed workers are productive workers. So what are you going to do with the bar? Sell it. What would I want with it anymore? taking this too personally okay i cheated you i cheat everyone it's business you see what you can get away with and you gotta figure the other guy's doing the same to you that's not the way the karma conduct business oh come on you can't tell me you never padded an inventory or pawned off a load of substandard merchandise no i haven't the karma believed that merchandise has a set value determined by the raw materials and the labor involved in creating it. Factor in transportation costs and a reasonable profit margin, and you arrive at a fair price. You make it sound so antiseptic. Where's the bargaining? Where's the scheme? Where's the greed? Greed leads to misjudgment, and that can result in a loss of profits. If there's no risk, there's no thrill. Your way is just barter if you want to win big you gotta be willing to play the odds it's like gambling gambling is the last recourse of the desperate only a fool would risk losing what he has to chance ah. wow there's a lot loaded in there uh, talk about a mixed message we get in in that whole thing you heard there between quark and some of the other characters 
once again, welcome back. You're listening to CHRW 94.9 FM, where we'll be with you from now till noon, 519-661-3600, the number to call if you want to join the conversation. Now, what you just heard discussed in that uh, last uh, confrontation with Cork and the fellow they're talking about, uh, you know, just barter versus all that stuff, and the fellow explains to him how... Uh, well, the way we figure out the value of something, we take the, the cost of the raw material, this, that, and the other thing. All that is called, that actually is called the labor theory of value. And that was what was expressed by Quark's protagonist in the previous clip. Now, what's interesting is that all communist theory is based on the labor theory of value, which means it's incorrect, okay? It doesn't work that way. Uh, everything that fellow said was wrong. That's not how the value of something is determined. The value of something is determined on whether you want it or not. Uh, I could put all that material into a widget or some invent something and have all the material, the labor, and all the cost. If nobody wants it, it is worth nothing, even though all that investment went into it. And that's how wealth can be wasted going into an investment that no one wants. And that's why human will, free will, must drive economies. Without free will, nothing works. Nothing works. The minute you have forced spending in any way, that, you know, it's all being destroyed. Now, all communist theory is based on the labor theory of value, which was propagated by collectivists like uh, Proudhon, whose famous statement, all property is theft, uh, I remember it was called by Isabel Patterson, quote, the most senseless phrase ever coined even by a collectivist. It is indeed remarkable in its own way for the variety of errors compressed into such brief utterance. In four words, it confuses objects, acts, attributes, moral values, and relations as if they were in interchangeable. Theft presupposes rightful ownership. An object must be property before it can be stolen. And this is just an end quote there, by the way. And, of course, the statement she's, she's commenting on is Proudhon's statement, all property is theft. And, uh, of course, it's a complete contradiction in terms, as is every theory on which communism is, is, is based. And what I never seem to be amazed at is how all socialist thought begins on contradictory premises such as these and then merely proceeds from there. And that's why I say that socialism has to be made up in its entirely fantasy concepts, meaning quite literally that socialist theory in any way, shape, or form simply doesn't correspond to reality. That's why there's so many infinite forms of socialism. Everybody's got their own little fantasy. There's only one form of capitalism, and that's the misnomer that a lot of the supposed defenders of capitalism are trying to tell you, oh, there's other forms. Uh, no, I'm afraid there isn't. And while I'm at it, a point needs to be made about the essential difference between these words. Socialist, capitalist, and socialism, and capitalism. These, uh, they're very different. Now, you know, there's one kind of socialist, but there's two kinds of capitalists. Now, a socialist is one who advocates capitalism. That's what makes you a socialist. You're in favor of capitalism. And to be sure, uh, I guess you could be called a capitalist if you were an advocate of capitalism. But that's not the major definition of capitalism. In fact, it's very hard to find a capitalist who advocates capitalism. Because a capitalist really, and historically, is not an advocate of anything, and is just as likely to support socialism as is any socialist. A capitalist is simply a person who earns all or part of his or her income from property which is capital, okay? A landlord is a capitalist when he rents accommodation to others for an agreed price. 
A banker is a capitalist when he lends money to others for interest. A businessman is a capitalist if you rent, say, farm machinery or appliances to consumers for an agreed price. You're a capitalist if you lend money to a friend or, 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 or you know, an acquaintance or a stranger at a rate of interest. So obviously, capitalists exist under all forms of government, and capitalists are associated with economic activity and with wealth creation. Now, socialists are not associated with economic activity at all, certainly not in the sense of wealth creation, since there is no wealth being produced in any way by socialists or by socialism. Socialists are completely 100% ideological political phenomenon. They're of no value to anyone, which is why they always need to resort to the use of force to get their ideas accepted and to impose their will upon everyone else. Capitalists create wealth even when they're forced to live under socialism. But ask a, a capitalist to defend capitalism. Well, <laughs> don't be holding your breath for any insights or enlightenment. And that explains the opinions of like Tom McInerney I, I cited early and all those other supposed conservatives and right-wingers who are supposedly uh, defending a system that don't even have the slightest idea of its definition. Uh, you know, the average capitalist is just a businessman who employs property in the creation of his income, not simply offering labor or services to the marketplace. Capitalists have nothing to do with any theories behind capitalism other than being maybe the object of study behind it, and that's about all there is to that. And, uh, you know, so basically when I use capitalist, I think of it more as an economic term, whereas when I use the word socialist, I think of a political term, because those are the things that really distinguish the two. And here's just another witness for the prosecution of capitalism, and this is literally the lead editorial in the Nash po National Post, November 15, which starts with the headline, The Worst Economic System. Oh, wonderful, except for all the others, right? The, the last thing the West needs is to reject capitalism. Well, I've heard this argument many times. The worst system except for all the others. Well, that's not a defense. That's not even a hint of a defense. And they write in this editorial that Winston Churchill once told the British House of Commons that democracy is the worst form of government except all those other forms that have been tried from time to time. In the economic sphere, perhaps the same could be said about capitalism. It's the worst way to order markets, except for all the other ways that have been tried. We're not talking about pure laissez-faire capitalism here, the paper stresses. Rather, we mean the basic concept that free markets are preferable to centrally planned economies. There will always be a regulatory role for government preventing fraud and abuse, mitigating the peaks and valleys of the investment cycle, and settling contractual disputes, among others. Well, right here, they're so wrong and so mixed. They're well, two-thirds right, one-third wrong. Yes, the government must prevent fraud and abuse. That's part of, by the way, laissez-faire capitalism. And yes, the government must settle contractual disputes. That's part of laissez-faire capitalism. But no, mitigating peaks and valleys of the investment cycle is not a, anything to do with laissez-faire capitalism or capitalism of any type. It's pure government intervention. But they continue, there can be no denying that free markets produce spikes and troughs. Well, <laughs> such as the trough in the world financial markets are experiencing now. Now, I utterly total and totally deny this. There's no world free world market. It is controlled, regulated, and taxed at every point of transaction and production. For the National Post to be able to write this is almost out of Mad Magazine. I, I just think it's amazing. And they say if G20 leaders want to do something useful, they can always look for ways to make markets work better rather than trying to concoct ambitious new schemes to increase government presence and economic choices. 
something that almost always makes matters worse. And so they want them to make the markets better. How's the government going to make the market better? That's just not even a possibility. I'm going to take a break now. And what you're going to hear coming up next is a broadcast that occurred on CTS just uh, two weeks ago Tuesday. And it was on the Christine Williams um, show that I appear on regularly. You heard me on, uh, on the CTS program with uh, Michael Corrin last week. But on this one, it's Freedom Party leader Paul McKeever, the self, uh, you know, self-confessed <coughs> capitalist, along with uh, Dr. George Breckenridge, who is a Ph.D. and political scientist on the subject of socialism and capitalism. And uh, they were just coming out of a conversation here wherein Americans have become the symbol of capitalism anywhere, and which accounts basically for why they're hated. And uh, there was some, uh, some speculation there that maybe that hatred is going down with, since Obama's been elected. So anyways, we'll listen to this. It's, it's, a, it's a longer than normal clip. We'll be coming out of it again on the other side. And when we return, we shall continue with what you can expect in the future. And the major question is, do you think we're being big hypocrites here in Canada when it comes to how we really feel about what the country should be when it comes to perhaps foreign affairs? I'm going to start with you on this one, Paul. You know, I think uh, it's a mistake to think that we're not anti-American anymore. It's just that Canadians now believe that America is not America anymore. That because it has a new president, it is now more like Canada. That it's throwing off its rugged individualism and becoming more collectivist and more altruistic and etc. And I think as a result of that, there's some forgiveness now of, you know, America has seen the error of its ways and thank goodness it's now going to be a socialist night nation like the rest of the world. <laughs> um, but I think the reality is that that resentment which we've had and I'm not saying me, but many Canadians have had against America, uh, especially as it relates to the, having the Republican presidency, is a result of conservatism, on the one hand, pretending to be the voice of, say, capitalism and individual freedom, but on the other hand, touting with all its might all of that self-sacrifice, the, the altruism, which actually is entirely incompatible with capitalism with the pursuit of one's own happiness. When you're saying that the best thing you can do in your life is to sacrifice for your fellow man, that is the altruism of socialism. So when a conservative comes out and says, I'm in, I'm in favor of capitalism and I care for my fellow man, the rational person says, you're a liar. And that conservatives lie. That in fact, they're just trying to pretend that they care for their fellow man. They're lying about their ethics. And so the result has been conservatives, to prove just how altruistic they are, outspend any liberal they can possibly imagine on social programs, medical care, dental care, you name it, they'll spend it, all to prove just how self-sacrificial they are. Which is why conservatives end up saying, what just happened? I thought that was supposed to be the capitalist party. It never was. And the reason was their morality was never consistent with individualism or capitalism. So everything's coming home to roost. Uh, an honest socialist has taken the presidency instead of a lying socialist. <laughs> Dr. Breckenridge. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, uh, George Bush started out, uh, billed himself as a compassionate conservative, and I guess you think that's a contradiction in terms. Yes. <laughs> but uh, he started out that way, but uh, kind of lost the plot. I mean, they, they lost control of spending. There was no discipline, and that's certainly true. And part of that was 
to, uh, in, to under pressure of public opinion. And part yes, of it was yes. just the usual kind of need of members of Congress to grab as much as they can so they can boast to their districts and get reelected. Part of that's yeah. partly what it did. But I mean, to call uh, Obama a socialist is really. You know, <laughs> it's really t distorting the meaning of that word in a, in a social. He's a, he's a he's certainly left of center. He wants to do a lot of things that uh, Bush didn't want to do, um, like uh, extending health insurance for people who don't have it and that sort of thing, and doing something about climate change. Uh, that doesn't make him a socialist, as far as I'm concerned. I mean, you know, in, in European terms, he wouldn't be recognizable as a socialist at all. But he certainly wants to do a number of progressive things. Mm -hmm. if you go, I would prefer to use a term like that, which wants to use government to do certain things for society on the grounds that individuals can't do it for themselves. But you see, when, when we look at the whole notion of socialism, it, yeah. there are many definitions. And I'm talking, it, it ends up being in the eyes of the beholder. For instance, people are looking at the stimulus package that was put out and they're saying it's very socialistic. Well, stimulus packages, if, if you're studying economics, there's something called Keynesian economics that's to do with stimulus packages, if you want to put it that way. The only difference is he perhaps went one step further by combining that with handouts. Um, they started gambling, you know, in the sense of, you know, uh, borrowing huge amounts of money and then spending them on these very dubious products that nobody really understood. Would you say that people and in so the, the States are greedier than us? Would you say that they're greedier than Canadians, people in the U.S., or is it just a different economic system over there? Well, part of the individualistic tradition is that it tends to go too far. It tends to overreach, and you get this, this ultra-optimistic notion that things can go up forever. And everybody with any common sense knows things cannot go up forever. There's bound to be some kind of corrective at some point in time. Uh, but the Americans are perhaps more prone than most people, I think, because of this kind of individualistic, optimistic, you know, America is the most, you know, is the only, only in America can you, this, that, or the other happen. It, 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 it tends to lead to this kind of boom-and-bust mentality. You know, and a number of times through the history, Canadians traditionally have been much more cautious, you know, about where they put their money and what they do with their money, and the banks have behaved a lot better than the American banks have done. <laughs> Paul, I want to hear what you have to say okay. about this, because you're, you're a self-professed capitalist, yes. right? Okay, <laughs> yes. okay, let's hear uh, what you have to say here. The two things. Uh, the, the current banking crisis is the result of... Uh, expansion of the money supply and contraction of the money supply. And, and you cannot have a stable economy so long as you're expanding and contracting the money supply. There ought to be a 100% reserve on all money that's loaned out so that for every dollar that's, on, that's being borrowed, there's actually a dollar sitting in the bank. But that's the technical reason and probably beyond the scope for our discussion. Um, as long as we have fractional reserve banking, we're going to have these booms and busts. Yeah. But um, apart from that, there's one, it's one thing to say individualism. That, that talks about, you know, egoism perhaps I'm looking you know, with the, the center the focus is on me but just because you think the focus is on you doesn't mean it really is there's there's a difference between hedonism in other words do it because it feels right or because you right. want to and actually rationally pursuing what's good for your life and good for your happiness rational egoism is never uh, you know self-defeating it never fails because it's rational it's connected with the facts of reality we get in trouble when we start thinking that we can borrow ourselves into wealth, mm -hmm. that we can uh, thieve ourselves into wealth, 
that the government can create something out of nothing, that either the government or uh, a supernatural entity or a witch in a, in a dime store uh, psychic ward can somehow um, give me effortless existence. I can, I can live without effort. I don't have to think. I don't have to work. Conservatism uh, is a perfect example mm -hmm. of trying to support individualism and capitalism by anything other than reason. What are the three ways they do it? One, God said capitalism was good. Two, it's old, it's traditional, we've always done it, therefore it's good. Three, you know what? Um, man is so evil that if we were to put a, a, a human being in charge, a dictator, um, you know, we would all be uh, enslaved. But if we were all moral and good, then we'd love, you know, so in other words, if we were all moral, then the ideal form of government would be dictatorship. None of these arguments work. The first one says that the left is right because, um, you know, you're, you're saying that the left has reason to themselves. We have faith. The second one says we have tradition. They have the future. They have what's progressive and, and moving forward. The third says man is a horrible beast, whereas the left is saying, no, he's not. I mean, how, how can you say by saying we don't think reason's uh, useful. We think that only the past is any good, the old, the rotten, the stagnant is any good, and, and we think that man is a dick, uh, a, 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 an immoral beast, and therefore we deserve capitalism? What, you might as well be writing the death warrant for capitalism and individualism. And that's exactly what the conservatives have done. I think that um, what needs to happen is not a flip to collectivism, not a return to tradition, but rather, mm -hmm. whether you're left or right, an, an, an acknowledgement of the facts of reality and that there are some things that, the, that the, you know, the facts of reality do not permit. You can't get something from nothing. And that the only way you can figure out what you can and cannot do is by being rational at all times. Don't guess, don't presume, have the evidence, and act only on the evidence. Assume everything else is false and don't govern any other way. <laughs> Dr. Breckenridge, I, I don't think, I don't yes, think individuals ahead. are capable of being of sustaining that kind of rationality no. for very long. So. Would you say that we're in a limbo right now? I mean, we're still in the honeymoon phase with Barack Obama. Especially from Dr. Breckenridge, who of course is a, uh, a PhD, right, in, in political science, and, and uh, basically, I think he's <laughs> he's essentially incorrect on everything. Dr. Breckenridge is. Um, you know, you know why people like him prefer the word progressive to socialist? Because it hides, it gets them out of the moral judgment aspect of it. Because they know that socialism works on force. So if they say progressive, well, then it doesn't sound so bad, does it? But they're using the same gun. What's the difference? So what's the future look like in the midst of all of our economic problems? You know, no one knows what's going on with the economy. I heard Jim Chapman say on his show yesterday, apparently he was at some event the day before, and people around him were telling him, we're in the middle of a perfect storm where everything seems to happen at once. And I heard uh, other people commenting the same kind of comments this morning on other radio stations. I noticed lately with Jim, though, that he's been in this uh, nothing-is-knowable mode of late on issues from the economy to global warming. Um, somebody needs to sit him down. I think we need to do a left, right, and center to explain the fallacy of that kind of thinking and how it prevents ever understanding anything. If you're going to be an eternal skeptic about everything, then it's no different than being a true believer. And while it's always true that you can never predict specific events in an economic crisis, you can always reliably predict the pattern of that crisis, determine its real causes, 
and implement real solutions. And anyone who really understands these phenomenon would instantly become an overnight laissez-faire capitalist and reject all forms of economic interventions by government. More important than attacking governments and politicians for their short-sightedness and political self-interest, what I think is really needed is a concerted effort to demonstrate not only the necessity, efficiency, justice, and success of capitalism in creating wealth, obviously this has been done for a long time without any public success, but the inherent qualities that make capitalism the only moral system open to mankind, and that's the thing people need to realize. Here, written in 1962 by Nathaniel Brandon, in Ayn Rand's book, Capitalism, the I Unknown Ideal, is an essay called Common Fallacies About Capitalism. And this one concerned depressions, and he writes, It is characteristic of the enemies of capitalism that they announce it for evils which are in fact the result not of capitalism, but of statism. Evils which result from and are made possible only by government intervention in the economy. Statists repeatedly assert that, depre that depressions, the phenomenon of the so-called business cycle, of boom and bust, which you just heard Dr. Breckenridge uh, use, are inherent in laissez-faire, and that the great crash of 1929 was the final proof of the failure of an unregulated free market economy. But what is the truth in the matter, asks Brandon. A depression is a large-scale decline in production and trade. It is characterized by a sharp drop in productive output, in investment, in employment, and in the value of capital assets, plants and machinery, etc. Normal business fluctuations, or temporary decline in the rate of expansion, do not constitute a depression. A depression is a nationwide contraction of business activity and a general decline in the value of capital assets of major proportions. There is nothing in the nature of a free market economy that can cause such an event. The popular explanations of depressions as caused by overproduction, underconsumption, monopolies, labor-saving devices, maldistribution, excessive accumulations of wealth, etc., have been exploded as fallacies many times. In any one industry, it's possible for supply to exceed demand in the context of all the other existing demands. In such a case, there's a drop in prices, in profitableness, in investment, and in employment in that particular industry. Capital and labor flow elsewhere, seeking more rewarding uses. Such an industry undergoes a period of stagnation as a result of unjustified, that is, uneconomic, unprofitable, unproductive investment. In a free economy that functions on a gold standard, and this of course would mean you're, you're holding the supply of money in check, such unproductive investment is severely limited. Unjustified speculation does not rise unchecked until it engulfs the entire nation. In a free economy, the supply of money and credit needed to finance business ventures is determined by objective economic factors. It is the banking system that acts as the guardian of economic stability. The principles governing money supply operate to forbid large-scale unjustified investment. If, in a period of increasing speculation, banks are confronted with an inordinate number of requests for loans, in response to the shrinking of availability of money, they A, raise their interest rates, or B, scrutinize more severely the ventures for which loans are requested, setting more exacting standards of what constitutes a justifiable investment. Which is ironic, because what, what are all our banks and our governments doing? Lowering interest rates. What did the headline say the other day? Lowest interest rates in Canada's history. That's trouble, folks. Might, might think you're getting a good deal, but you're going to be paying some huge interest rates a few years down the road. So as a consequence, funds are more difficult to obtain. This is in a free market where they constrain, 
constrain the money supply as it should be, when it should. And there's a temporary cur curtailment in, and contraction of business investment. The impact of such a recession may be significantly felt in a few industries, but does not wreck the entire economy. A nationwide depression, such as occurred in the U.S. in the 30s, would not have been possible in a fully free society. It was made possible only by government intervention in the economy, more specifically by government manipulation of the money supply. The government's policy consisted, in essence, of anesthetizing the regulators inherent in a free banking system that prevent runaway speculation and consequent economic collapse. This sounds like the newspapers today. This was the implicit premise that led to the establishment in 1913 of the Federal Reserve System. There's, a, there's the bugaboo that started it all. An institution with control over the individual banks throughout the country. The Federal Reserve undertook to free individual banks from the limitations posed on them by the amount of their own individual reserves, to free them from the laws of the market, and to arrogate to government officials the right to decide how much credit they wish to make available and at what times. A cheap money policy was the guiding idea and goal of these officials. Banks were no longer to be limited to making loans by the amount of their gold reserves, interest rates were no longer to rise in response to increasing speculation, and credit was to remain readily available, unless the Federal Reserve decided otherwise. The government argued that by taking control of money and credit out of the hands of private bankers and by contracting or expanding credit at will, guided by the considerations other than those influencing the quote-unquote selfish bankers, it could, in conjunction with other in interventionist policies, so control investment as to guarantee a state of virtually constant prosperity. Many bureaucrats believed the government could keep the economy in a state of unending boom. To borrow an invaluable metaphor from Alan Greenspan, writes Brandon back in 1962, if under laissez-faire the banking system and the principle of controlling the availability of funds act as a fuse that prevents a blowout in the economy, then the government, through the Federal Reserve System, put a penny in the fuse box. The result was the explosion known as the crash of 1929, and we could also say the crash of 2009. Going to take a quick break again, hear a little bit more from Paul McKeever and George Breckenridge, and we'll be back on the other side of this about individualism. So when it comes to the definition of socialist, I'm sensing from the two of you in your position, both of you are very different when it comes to defining this word. Yeah, and I want to hear in your, exactly, well, but I want to yeah. hear what the two of you have to say about what your definition of socialism is before we go on from here. Sure. I, I, I would define socialism, I, in fact, that's probably the, the subset. The, the broader term is collectivism. And the, the idea is that that we're all in this together, that the wealth is all in one big pot and that it all gets distributed by some means, either by a dictator or by will of the majority or by religious whim or whims of the majority. I mean, it, the idea of the collective is that we're all in this together, we're all responsible to our fellow man, and that implies altruism. It means that I don't have a right to exist if I'm not helping my fellow man to exist. I have no right to set up my own land, live my own life, pursue my own happiness, make that my purpose in life, even if I'm not helping someone else. Whereas the collectivist, that's the, that's the mm -hmm. capitalist view. The, the collectivist view is the one that says, you know, you are your brother's keeper. And so the capitalist one is the one that says, no, you're not. It's the common law view as opposed to, say, the civil, civil law view, the, the Roman law view, which is that really we're all in this together. Well, but mm -hmm. th that notion that we're all in this together and we all have some responsibility for one another, you could call it a Christian view. Mm -hmm. Never mind, this, you know, it doesn't, oh, have, to, it doesn't have to be mm -hmm. a socialist view. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, I'm, am I, you know, I'm my brother's keeper. I mean, 
Um, so that that's very, has very deep roots in the whole you know, Western Judeo-Christian tradition. Oh yes. yes. So there's nothing alien about that at all. They are, the socialism is an argument about how you, you know, how you do that. And it's not again, about there balance. are various kinds of socialism. It's well. not about balance. I mean, yeah. before the show today, I was telling you about this book that was written by two editors from McLean's magazine. In fact, we did it. It's called Yesterday. We featured it. It's called The Ego Boom. They talked about the roots of individualism in our country, which was to be admired. It was uh, our founding fathers, both yeah. in the U.S. and Canada, adopted this view, and it had to do with the laws that we have today, our constitution, the pursuit of happiness according to our laws, yeah, yeah. which is applauded in North American culture. Individual and nothing right. is wrong so, with that. But yeah. there's a certain point at which it becomes, there's a sacrifice. And I don't mean it in a good way. You sacrifice the entire community because it becomes a selfish ambition yeah, and a selfish yeah. pursuit. Right. And that is the one area that North Americans can't seem to come to grips with when it comes to the balance between pursuing your individual interest and at the same time looking out for the community. Well, America, there's no doubt America has a very strong, a very strong streak of individualism, more so than most countries, more so than Europe, and more so than here. We have more of a collectivist, if you want to use that tradition. And of course, that also, if you go back to the philosophical roots, that's also the conservative, small-c conservative tradition. Yeah. Yeah. It's essentially a, a collective. The individual finds his, his or her place within the, you know, within the collective, and he has certain duties towards the collective and, and to one another. So you have all of these traditions, you know, which are, and the, the problem in America, I think, and of course it's infected us as well, mm -hmm. and it's infected other countries as well, is that individualism has been pushed to the point where the whole thing, you know, sort of falls over and collapses. See, the I trouble, disagree entirely. Well, you see, the trouble you is there you are so what? many want, things yes. that, that individuals alone cannot do. change in the past 300 years. People are no longer obsessed with the accumulation of things. We've eliminated hunger, want, the need for possessions. We've grown out of our infancy. You've got it all wrong. It has never been about possessions. It's about power. Power to do what? To control your life, your destiny. That kind of control is an illusion. Really? I'm here, aren't I? I should be dead, but I'm not. There's another one of those silly things that uh, Jean-Luc Picard says. Fortunately, he's proven wrong right there on his own show. You know, just a couple points to wrap up. People talk about individualism as, it means, as if it means some kind of detachment from society. I thought Albert Hubbard in his 1001 epigrams had a little quote there. He says, you know, self-reliance is all right. But independence is out of the question. No man gets along in life without the cooperation and support of other men. And, you know, th therein lies a secret in understanding what individualism is not. There's nothing inherent in the nature of individualism that implies isolation or detachment from society or lack of commitment to others or anything of that sort. Individualism means that the social relationships and economic relationships are freely chosen by individuals and not imposed upon them by other individuals or criminals or groups or governments. It means that the interdependencies of individuals are freely entered into 
and may be severed by any individual so as to be able to network and join another social group or economic relationship. So really individualism is the hallmark of civilization. And civilization defines any free society that has barred the use of physical force between its citizens because uncivilized behavior is brute force. Civilized behavior is persuasion, negotiation, and freedom of association. So that's really all there is. Just a couple, you know, quick points, too, is that, you know, all this talk about Christianity, you know, the Christian view equals socialism. Well, that's not true. We examined that last week, and Isabel Patterson went into it very clearly how the church was not into that at all. You know, if you're your, brother, if you're your brother's keeper in, in practice with government, you're going to become your brother's jailkeeper, and that's what's happening. And uh, the other last little point I want to mention is that there are not various kinds of socialism. There are only relative degrees of socialism. That's really the key to that. But there's so much more to be said on this. We're out of time today. We're going to wrap it up and hope you'll join us again next week when we continue our journey in the right direction. So until then, stay right, act right, do right, and think right. We'll see you next week. Take care. Fade into color Color into black and white Under the bedclothes there's a lot of things that don't make any sense that we say or hear all the time uh, and you think about it for 10 seconds they, they're, they're pointless like not for all the tea in China you've heard somebody say that hey man we're going skydiving this weekend you want to come? I wouldn't jump out of a plane not for all the tea in China <laughs> why do you want that much tea? I don't know about you guys I drink one cup of tea I'll pee for six hours man. And let's say somehow you do make that deal. You jump out of the plane, you're going to get all the tea in China. You're going to piss off a lot of Chinese tea drinkers, aren't you? You're there in Beijing, oh, son of a bitch, why you give up all our tea? What we drink now, huh? Coffee? Coffee give everybody gas. 800 million gassy Chinese, this a place going to smell like a buffalo.